You are listening to the Living Way Church podcast. For more information about Living Way Church, go to livingwaychurch.cc. Now, a lot of times churches kind of, they, they just build up and build up and build up to Easter. And then we have this amazing Easter service that a lot of churches around the world have. 2,000 years ago, God stepped into the doorway of humanity, walked this earth, lived a life of, of, of amazing love and miracles. He was crucified and then we celebrate his resurrection on Easter. And, and then we go home. But is that all this story? Is that, is that where it ends? See, the question is what happens next is really why we meet on a weekly basis and why we meet every Sunday. Acts 1.3 says this. It says, after his suffering, talking about Jesus, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Now, uh, we're going to come back to that passage in a minute because that passage actually has uh, the trump card. Now, I love big cards. Everybody needs a, a set of jumbo super cards like this. If you don't have them, you need to order them because this is just, they're just fun to have, right? These are real cards and they are a mess to play with. We've tried because uh, you're like holding like this. Now, there are cards that are considered uh, the, the killer cards. The cards that, you know, there's cards that are the, what you would might say are the, uh, are the cards that, um, anybody here ever play spades? All right, I love spades. And there's one card that's more powerful than any other cards in the deck. Do you know what that card is? Is it, uh, is it this card? <laughs> I'm just randomly pulling out cards here. Is it, let me see, is it this card? No, no. What card is it? Now, this one's a pretty good one. Is it this one? Yes. <laughs> we all know it's this one, right? It's, it's, the, it's the ace of spade, and it is known as the, the master trump card. It is the trump card. All the spades are trump cards, but the ace of spade is considered in a deck of cards the most powerful card in the deck and and I'll tell you, maybe you've heard the, the, the phrase, you know, ace in the hole or uh, uh, ace up his sleeve. You know, those are kind of phrases that represent this kind of like, like um, automatic win or this, you know, this, uh, this, uh, this secret, you know, strategy that you have that's going to win. Like if you're playing cards and, and you've got, you know, you've got your, uh, your ace of spade in your hand, you're just like, you're just like, Ain't no worries, you know what I'm saying? Because like, you know that, that, you know, you could be, you know, struggling and they could be like, ah, but ah, they're, they're playing their cards, but you ain't got no worries as it goes around the table because all of a sudden you pull out this and all of a sudden the table goes, oh, you win. It's the trump card. Jesus' resurrection is life's trump card. All right, we have a, uh, an ace up our sleeve. We have a, a card that plays and wins over everything. So when we talk about the resurrection, we're talking about this ace in the hole. We're talking about having a guarantee win at the end of this life and even in this life. Uh, after he rose from the grave, after that trump card was played, the story is just getting started. It's just beginning. 
It's not the finale to the story of the Old Testament and his life. It's the beginning of the story of the rest of our life. It's our story. Now, the New Testament gives four versions of the resurrection, and they're all a little bit different. Four versions out of four gospels. Now, some people will say that, that, that somehow that means that the, that the resurrection has all kinds of problems. Was it one woman? Was it three women? Uh, one gospel mentions four women. Uh, one gospel mentions two angels. One mentions one angel. One mentions no angels. One mentions some of the apostles showing up at the grave and some of them, it doesn't mention them at all. So what is the right story? What See, what appears to be contradictory is actually complementary. Uh, these are complementary accounts. In fact, the differences in the versions prove that there's no collusion. You see, nobody got together and said, all right, guys, we got to get our stories straight. You know, we got, because people are going to start asking us. There was, there was none of that. In fact, if you had five people at an event give the exact same account of a crime scene or some activity or an event, you would think there's something suspicious if you're an investigator because that would prove that there's potential collusion. So the four versions are complementary accounts that prove that this was a legitimate event based on four sets of eyes and four different perspectives. I bet if each one of you had an assignment, if I said, write down your morning as of yet, like if I had you write down, you know, give me one paragraph of what your experience walking in the door and sitting down was, we would have as many different people in this room, we would have that many different versions of the story. Some of you would include characters that the others would not include. Some of you would include food and some of you would not include food or coffee and not include coffee because your perspective and your view of the situation gives a different account. It does not mean that, that they're contradictory. If someone reads your source, oh, well, there's not food in this one. There's food in this one. There must be some kind of mess up and, you know, and, and this can't be true. This event, you know, is a, is a sham. No, it's the differences that prove complementary truth. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at those four versions real quick before we dive into what the resurrection means for us today. We're going to take a look at what's known as the harmony of the gospels. And by the way, antiquity, which is, is, a, is a fancy word for saying the old writers of the ancients, they were more concerned with character over chronology which means they focused on the character of a person and didn't so much worry about the chronology events. So you're gonna have gospel accounts where the stories are like all jumbled, where some of them are near the end, some of them are at the beginning, and it doesn't matter because they're focusing on the character in real events that happened, character over chronology. So what we try to do as as teachers of the Bible and people who, who learn about the Bible is we try to harmonize the Bible. And so I want to give you very quickly a harmony of the resurrection of four gospels, four versions, complementary accounts. And let's start with the big one of his burial. <clears throat> Today, the four give the full view. 
On Friday, Jesus is crucified and buried. On Saturday, the tomb is sealed and soldiers are sent to guard over it. Sunday morning, there was an earthquake. An angel rolls away the stone. Guards drop as if they're dead. And then they awake and they run off and they begin to tell people that Jesus' body has been stolen. That is given in three different gospels so far. From the resurrection to the ascension, Jesus appears to people many, many times. 12 times specifically, Jesus shows up after the resurrection over the course of 40 days. So let's take a look at the Jesus sightings and what they mean for us. I'm gonna hit these really quick. These, this is not mass hallucinations or illusions. This is reality of what happened. The four gospels together give us this harmony. So here we go, we're gonna hit him fast. In the morning, Mary, Mary and Salome, and then another gospel mentions a fourth woman named Joanna, go to the tomb and find it empty. Mary Magdalene leaves to tell the disciples that Jesus is gone. The other women stay, they see angels, and this angel says that Jesus is risen. Mary tells the disciples, and then Peter and John run to the empty tomb only to find grave clothes and no angels and no Jesus. And so they return. Mary Magdalene then returns to the tomb. She sees the two angels that the women saw before, and then she sees Jesus. And she's the first person to see Jesus. Then the other women on the way to tell the disciples they then see Jesus, second appearance. And then the women tell the disciples what they have seen and heard. Jesus then appears to Peter privately. The Bible does not elaborate on this, but it does mention it. And that's his third appearance. Jesus then appears to a disciple named uh, Cleopas and another mystery disciple not named. Many believe it's his wife. And by the way, Cleopas, here's a little kind of little footnote to know, is the uncle to Jesus. It's the brother of Joseph, the father or the, the surrogate father of, uh, not surrogate, but the, uh, the, the stepdad, so to speak, the adopted father. So that's kind of cool. Jesus appears to his uncle. Many believe, because biblically in that culture, the uncle or the brother of the father takes care of the children, that many believe this was Jesus's stepfather. Okay. Anyhow, Whole nother thing. Jesus appears to Cleopas and another disciple on the road to Emmaus. And then Jesus appears to a group of all the disciples, of 10 of them and another group, but Thomas was absent. And this is all on the first day. And that is five appearances. One week later, after the resurrection, Jesus then appears to a group of disciples and a group of people, all 11 are present, including Thomas. And that's when Thomas sees Jesus one whole week after the resurrection, the sixth appearance. Two weeks after the resurrection, they go to Galilee. And while they're fishing, Jesus appears to seven disciples, cooks them a fish breakfast, and teaches them about the kingdom of God. That's the seventh appearance. Three to four weeks after the resurrection now, 
in Galilee, Jesus appears to all the disciples on the mountain in Galilee and gives what's known as the Great Commission. Jesus then appears to a crowd of at least 500. Here's another thing about antiquity. Antiquity only records the numbers of men, not women and children. So in the Bible, when it says Jesus fed 5,000, that was men only. That wasn't the children and women present. Many people believe that he didn't just feed 5,000. He fed up to 15 to 20,000 based on men and women that were there. So the 500 present, specifically in the original mentions only 500 men. So it could have well have been over 500 people at one time, but we know at least 500 people saw Jesus alive. That's the ninth appearance. That's all at one time. A mass crowd. Word was getting out. And then Jesus appears to his half-brother James it's not elaborated on, but it's mentioned in 1 Corinthians, and that's the 10th appearance. And then Jesus appears to the other apostles, and that is up to 72 people who are considered apostles. So when the Bible says that Jesus appeared to the 12, and then it says, and then he appeared to all of the apostles. That means there's a, a number there that's greater than 12. We know that there are 72 designated apostles that Jesus calls in his, in his ministry. And so there's at least 72 there. 40 days after the resurrection, back in Jerusalem, in the place called the Mount of Olives, Jesus meets them one more time, gives them one more challenge, encourages them to stay in Jerusalem for the spirit of God's gonna fall on them. And he ascends into heaven while two angels are there saying, what are you waiting for? The same way that he's left, he's coming back, get to work, go out there and, and do what you are called to do. Now, here's a bonus appearance Four years later, he shows up to the Apostle Paul, not just in vision form, but in physical form, and he talks to Paul on the road to Damascus. So there are 13 appearances, 12 within the 40 days. Now, Christianity is not based on the miracles of Jesus or even the teachings of Jesus. Christianity, as crucial as those things are, our faith is based on the resurrection of Jesus. Everything we believe is based upon this reality that Jesus rose from the dead. In fact, I want you to write this down. The resurrection is a historical truth, not a religious truth. What does that mean? That means we are not by faith just accepting that he rose from the dead. There is historical evidence. It is a fact that he rose again from the dead. That is a historical truth. It's not just something religiously that we accept because it's part of our religion. This is the facts of life. And so we now have to make a decision on what we are going to do with this truth. See, the resurrection is the trump card. When people wonder, we know Jesus lived. It's outside of the Bible. We know he lived. We know he, he it was recorded that he did miracles. We know that he was crucified. There's evidence of this outside of the Bible. He's a real person. But is he the one who he says that he is? C.S. Lewis used to say he's either liar or he's lunatic or he's the Lord. Either he's the biggest liar of all time spreading lies about himself and being a trickster and some kind of illusionist or magician 
or he's a lunatic, lost his mind, has told everybody he's God, but he's out of his mind, or he's truly Lord. And how do we know that he is Lord? Because of the resurrection. That's the trump card. That's the trump card. Because of the resurrection, we know, we know, we know that it's true. Before Easter, we were in a series called Messy Grace, and we're walking through the letter of 1 Corinthians, a letter that Paul wrote to a church in Corinth that was going through all kinds of craziness. Today, we're segueing back into the 1 Corinthians series, and we're going to pick right up next week in chapter 11. But in chapter 15 of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, Paul dedicates a whole chapter on the resurrection. We're going to look at the first part of that chapter, and then later on, when we get back to 15, we're going to talk about the rest of it. So let's kind of take a look at what he says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. He says this, now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel. Everybody say gospel. Gospel is not a music genre. <laughs> All right. It is a word that means good news. That's what it means. Okay. So every time you see the word gospel, it means good news. So it says, I want to remind you of the good news, the good life-changing, life-altering news that changes everything. I preached to you which you received and on which you have taken your stand. He says, I preached it, you received it, and now we stand on it. Okay. I preached it, you received it. Now we stand on it. The life teams are going to talk about this gospel message uh, in life teams this week. Be a part of one. So the gospel simply means good news. And this is what he says, verse 2. By this gospel, we are saved. There is, there is only salvation in one gospel. There's only one good news message that can change and, regen and redeem and regenerate a life. There's only one. And he says, this gospel, by this gospel that he's about to share, you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you believed in vain. That means if you don't believe this gospel, you believe in vain whatever gospel you're believing in. Whether it be another religion, it doesn't matter how sincere you are. It doesn't matter how committed you are. If it is a false gospel, if it is not the truth, you believe in vain. He says, by this gospel alone, he says, you are saved. So if you are in another religion, if you have another perspective of what it means to be saved, another view of Jesus, then what he is about to say, you believe it in vain. He says, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. This is the most first essential important thing you must believe. He says, this is the gospel. Are you ready? Here's the gospel. He says this, the Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. It refers to the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as scriptures, by the way. And that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day, according to scripture. Now, what Paul does right here is he lays out a very simple gospel. And I want to share with you very quickly, before we go into the rest of what he says about the resurrection, the very simple gospel, you must believe this to be saved. This is what is required. You must 
trust in what he says or there is no salvation. This is what he says, this is what I preached. This is what you received. And this is what we stand on. What is it? It's this, Christ. This is the first part. That means that Jesus is fully God. You know, Christ means, don't skim over this title that he gives him. Christ means the, it means the promised forever king of eternity. It is a reference to the divinity of Christ as the Messiah, the promised forever king. This is vital because when we read that statement, don't, don't fly over that title, Christ, because Christ tells us that Jesus is fully God and that he is king of all and that he is to be Lord and master of your life. See, this is vital. See, your potential view of Jesus is what will separate you from true salvation and not. It's essential. Jesus is not just a prophet. He is not a creation. He is not a mini God. He's not God in training. He's not part God. He's not just an example to follow. He's the royal forever king of glory. He is Christ and there is only one. So this is right off the top, Christ, fully God. And then he says, died for our sins. That means the cross is full and final payment. It means Jesus took our place on the cross. If you don't believe that Jesus died for your sins, there is no redemption from your sins. He didn't just die to show us an example of self-sacrifice. He didn't just die for those who do sin. He says, no, we're all diseased with sin and Christ paid the price for that sin. He was our substitute. He took our place. It's the substitutionary atonement of Christ. He said, Christ fully God died full payment and was buried. That means he's fully human. He actually died in his humanity. See, we must believe that Jesus is not just God, but he's also a man, fully man, fully God, the mystery of the kenosis of Christ. It's the mystery of the incarnation of God in the flesh. We must believe that he is fully God. We must believe that he fully paid for our price and we must fully believe that he is fully human and he rose again. That means he is fully alive. This sealed the deal. Without the resurrection, Paul's gonna tell us everything else is pointless. This sealed the deal. The resurrection proved it all. We must accept, believe, and establish and trust in this value and truth. And then he says this, this is all according, he says, to scripture. That means that the word of God is fully trustworthy. See, this is the simple gospel that a fully God made a full payment in his full humanity, fully alive and living today. And the scriptures can be fully trusted to tell us that story. This is the simple gospel. He says, this is what I preached. This is what you received. This is what we stand on. And then he gives some evidence. He gives, basically summarizes the, the things that we talked about earlier. Look at this, verse five. Then Jesus, after he rose from the dead, he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter. 
and then to the 12. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. Most of whom, by the way, this translation says brothers and sisters. The original says only men. Again, meaning that it could well have been over 500 people. Most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. That means they have died. And he says, many of them have died, but many of them are alive. And if you don't believe me, go ask them because a lot of them are still alive. There's still witnesses out there. He says, go find them. This is four years, by the way, after the resurrection so far. Actually, by the time Corinthians, we're looking at six years after the resurrection. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, separating this from the appearance from just the 12. And last of all, he appeared to me also, one who is abnormally born. What does that mean? That means I was not uh, born in, into the situation where I had the privilege to be uh, a follower of Jesus in my life. Um, Four years after the resurrection, he met Jesus. Basically, he says Jesus is alive. He's not just spiritually. He is physically alive, and he appeared physically to others. There's no doubt about it. He is alive. This is what we preached. This is what we received. This is what we stand on. Verse 9, for I am the least of all the apostles, and I don't deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Many of you guys know the Paul's life. Man, this is the power of God. This is what the gospel does. This gospel that Jesus, the Christ, lived, died, was buried, rose again, and the scriptures are trustworthy. This is the power of the gospel that turns a terrorist into an evangelist. The apostle Paul was terrorizing Christians and God turned his life around in such a way, a hard-hearted person. There's nobody beyond the reaches of God. Don't write off anybody on that list of people you hope will know Jesus someday. Nobody is beyond the reach of God. He says, but by the grace of God, by the favor of God, by God's love for me, not by my deserving of anything, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was, what, uh, was not without effect. That means grace, the grace of God touched me and it changed me. He goes, he says, no, I work harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that is with me. He says, man, I realize what I have and I'm out there, man, trying to make a difference because I know what God's grace has done for me. Whether then it is I or they, talking about the other apostles and all these other people that saw Jesus, says, whether it's me or them, this is what we preach. And this is what you believed. Jesus is fully God, that he physically died for our sins, physically rose from the dead, and he is alive and ruling today. He is King and Lord of all. We stand on this. We are saved by this. We declare this. What I want to tell you is there are two things that everyone needs, but most only want one of them. The two things are this. The first one is a savior. It's known as the substitutionary Jesus. This is what we want. We're like, wait a minute. Jesus took my place for my sin. I don't have to go to hell if there is one. Sign me up. Where do I sign the card? What prayer do I pray? Yeah, I'll, I'll be baptized or whatever that means. I just don't want to go to hell. Son, I want a savior. We all want the savior, Jesus, the one who took our place, the, who was punished on a cross for our sins. We want the substitute and this must be received. First John uh, 1.12, you write this down. It says, but to all who did receive Jesus, 
who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. This must be received. This message is not something that happens by osmosis. We must receive this. And you're like, yeah, I want to receive a savior, a substitute for my sin. But the second one most of us don't want, and that is a Lord, the supremacy of Jesus. We often want a savior, someone who saved us from hell and our problems and, and judgment, but we don't want a Lord. We don't want someone to call the shots in our life. We surrender to a savior, but we don't want to surrender to a king. Listen, Jesus is king. We surrender to the Lordship. He is already ruling and reigning. When we surrender to his lordship, we're not making him king of our life. He is king regardless of what you do. We're acknowledging his lordship and kingship in our life and therefore submitting to his already reigning authority that he has. He is the master. He is the one who calls the shots. He does through Christ, through the cross, own our life. Now we're like, sign me up for the savior, but no thanks for the Lord. I'm my own boss, I'm my own king, sitting on my own throne. I'll take savior today, but maybe make him Lord one day. Listen, that's a false gospel that separates lordship from savior. He is Lord and savior. Remember, this is the gospel that we preach. Christ was crucified, Christ, Lord. We must believe and accept and surrender to the Lordship of Christ. There is no savior without Lordship. There is no following without a turning. Luke 9, 23, Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. If the resurrection is true, then Jesus is who he says he is, did what he said he did, and it requires a response. And with that, the apostle Paul continues in chapter 15 with verse 12. He says, we all saw it. This is the gospel that we preach. And he says, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. See, some of the people in Corinth could not believe that there was life after death. Now, they were struggling with this. And so Paul was addressing this issue in chapter 15 and he really unpacks it a lot. And we're gonna take a look at it over the course of a couple of weeks uh, in the weeks to come when we get back to this chapter as we work through Corinthians again. But I wanna focus on what he's saying here now. He's saying that it matters and why it matters. If it didn't happen, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, if it's just a myth, if it's just a made-up story, if it's a creation of people, what if the tomb was never empty? What if his body was stolen? Is it possible? What if it was a hoax, a legend, a scam, and like the Easter bunny, something fun to believe in? Well, this is why it matters. 1 Corinthians 15, 14 says, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is our faith. If it never happened, if it's not true, Christianity is a deceptive delusion. Church is a waste of time. All my preaching and all your believing is a waste of time. Faith in Jesus is absolutely worthless and what we're doing here is pointless. If he didn't rise from the dead, let's just turn the lights off and go home. Why are we here? 
He says, it's just a deceptive delusion if he didn't rise from the dead. And then he, he's going to give us several reasons of why it matters. He goes, another one, 1 Corinthians 15, the very next verse said, more than that, if Christ didn't raise from the dead, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified by, about God that he raised Christ from the dead, but he, he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. Number two, if it's not true, then the New Testament is filled with lies written by liars. Every disciple is a liar. Every apostle is a liar. Every New Testament writer, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Peter, James, Jude, all of them, all of them liars. He says, if, it's not, if this isn't true, we're lying to you and you can't trust any of us. You can't trust anything we say. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, the New Testament is a worthless, pointless lie of a book. And then he goes, verse 16, and if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ is not raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Here's another thing he says, if it's not true, then we're dead in our sins and destined for judgment. If there is a God and he is holy, then if the resurrection ever happened, then we're still sinners and we'll have to face judgment someday before a holy God. And if there is a hell, he says, if the resurrection didn't happen and there's a hell, we're all going there. And every one of us is still dead in our sins. He says, it matters. And we will all be there. Verse 18, he says, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. Write this down. He says, if it's not true, heaven is wishful thinking. He says, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, then every person who's died is just dead. And there's no hope to ever seeing any of them again. And they just turn to dust and they don't exist anymore. If there's no resurrection from the dead in Christ, then all of us, this life is it. And there's nothing left beyond the grave. Heaven is just a made up fantasy. And when this is life is over, we cry, turn to dust, and we'll never see our loved ones again, the end, if the resurrection ever happened. Verse 19, if only for this life, he says, we have hope. If Christ never raised from the dead, he's saying, then we are all people most to be pitied. He says, if it's not true, Christians are pathetic fools. We're foolish, simple-minded dummies to be pitied, missing out on life's pleasures for an imaginary friend. He says, man, if it didn't happen, we're a bunch of pathetic fools. Verse 29, a strange verse. I want to tell you what it means because this verse has actually been used out of context. He says, now, if there is no resurrection, what will those who are baptized for the dead do? He did not say we, he said, but those who do, by the way, if the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? This is a verse that some Mormons use to justify a thing that they do called baptism for the dead. They actually baptize themselves again for dead people. And they use this verse as an example. He is not condoning baptism for the dead. This is actually condemned in the rest of Corinthians and throughout the New Testament. What is he saying? He's basically saying this. If Corinthian pagan custom, the custom of baptizing for the dead happens, 
If there's no life after death, then why do others do this? He's basically saying, even the pagans have a sense of eternity. Why can't we? Okay, that's all he's saying. If they even believe in a resurrection, why are you struggling with this? He's not condoning this. He's basically saying, even the pagans do something. Maybe there's something in our heart that's drawing us to this. And then he goes on to say, and as for us, meaning we don't do that, we don't baptize for the dead. He says, but as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour as followers of Christ, as preachers? He says, I face death every day. Yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus, our Lord, I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes. <laughs> I love that. He literally was tossed into the arena to fight beasts. And all I had was my hope <laughs> as a weapon. And he says, what if, if this happened to me and all that happened to me, which he defines in 2 Corinthians, and it, man, he went through so much. He says, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow, we die. He says this, if it's not true, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, then personal sacrifice for God and others is stupid. He says, man, I spent my whole life putting my life on the line risking my life, putting myself in harm's way. And if it's not true, what a fool I've been. All this sacrifice that I've made for the kingdom and for you, pointless. Every outreach, every mission trip, every Bible study, every youth camp, every kids event, hours serving, praying for others, coming early and staying late. The millions and millions of followers of Christ over the thousand of years who've given their life for the cause of Christ on the mission work, all of it, all of it, stupid if the resurrection didn't happen, all of it pointless. Paul says, if it didn't happen, let's just go party. Let's just go have a party, YOLO, you only live once. So let's just eat, drink, be merry, have a party because tomorrow we're dead. He says, if the, if the resurrection didn't happen, this is what it's about. And then he says, but, <laughs> he says, but it did happen. But it did happen. And this is why it matters. Because it did happen, he says this. He goes on to say this. He says, it proves everything Jesus said about himself is absolutely true. Because it happened, because the resurrection is fact, Jesus proves he is God. That the kingdom is real that his teachings are to be followed. And because he rose from the dead, that means the cross of Jesus truly paid the debt we could not pay. That because it's true, the cross literally sealed the deal for our salvation to those that believe. Jesus paid a debt we, uh, paid a debt he did not owe that we could not pay. It really does forgive us. It's not just wishful thinking. Because it happened, every sin, everything you've ever done, washed clean. It goes on to say this in verse 20. He says, but Christ has indeed been risen from the dead. The first 
fruits of those who have fallen asleep. That means what happened to him is just a sign of what's going to come in our life. A preview of what is to come for those who, who believe in him. He says, for since death came through a man, that's Adam, uh, the resurrection of the dead came through also one man, that's Jesus. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Those in Christ will be made alive. Those who believe, those who receive this salvation that we preach, that you receive, that we stand on, that simple gospel, those that believe this, he says, will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ, he says, the first fruits, Jesus was the first to be resurrected. Then when he comes again at his return, those who belong to him will be resurrected. I want you to write this down. Because it matters, because it happened, this life is not the end. This life is not the end. We don't breathe our last breath and turn into the void of nothingness. We're not just a memory. We're not just kept alive in the heart and memories of, of other people. As Jesus was resurrected, those in Christ will be resurrected, made into and given a new body. Not just an improved version, but a perfect and powerful version. We're going to talk about this in the weeks to come because he describes that new body of yours if you're in Christ in the second half of chapter 15. Heaven is for real, and I don't need a silly little story from a little boy to prove it. I don't need some near-death experience that is a fabrication of usually most people's, uh, you know, desire to make money and to make a movie and to make a book. I don't need a, some book from a little boy to tell me that heaven is for real. The gospels, the New Testament, the resurrection tells me we will live again and the next life is just the beginning. Then he says this, then the end will come. He's talking about the end of the world. This is all temporary. When he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power, that means the final judgment, when he has finally uh, cast Satan and fallen angels and those that rebel against God into the lake of fire, he says, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. That means even now he reigns lest we self-destruct. So even now he is reigning until even then he'll reign as the king of kings. But there's a sense that he's reigning now awaiting his full reign. So it's not like he will be king, he is king. I want you to write this down. Because it matters and because it happened, we don't need to be afraid of the end. Life is not the end. And if you are a Christian, you don't have to be afraid of the end. If you're in Christ, he's coming back to take you home. You don't need to be afraid of his return. It's gonna be a wonderful day. The first time he came, he saved us spiritually. The second time he comes, he's gonna save us physically. We will be resurrected and given a new body that will be like the one, his first, he was the first fruit of, he was the preview of what we will get. We don't have to be afraid of the end of the world at the end of time. It may not happen in our lifetime, it may, but we don't have to be afraid. And then he says this, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Second Corinthians 5 talks about our new body that we're gonna get. I want you to write this down. Because it happened, we have hope in this life. We have something to look forward to. The sting of that loss is defeated. There's probably nothing more painful than the loss of someone you love. 
the shortest verse in the Bible is Jesus wept when he wept over the grave of his very dear friend Lazarus. Knowing that he could rise Lazarus, raise Lazarus from the dead, he still wept over the pain and heartache of death and what he saw on those around him. There are very few things as painful as losing someone that you love. Every loved one in Christ, my mom, your dad, your brother, your sister, your spouse, we have a beautiful assurance in Christ. We have a wonderful hope in this life because of the resurrection. We mourn, but not with those who have no hope, Paul says. More on this in the weeks to come as we talk about the afterlife that Paul talks about. So if all of this is true, what do we do? I'm going to end with a passage in Acts chapter 2, and then we're going to pray. He says this, when the apostles heard this, uh, sorry, when the people heard this, Peter had just stood up and preached the gospel, the gospel that Paul was proclaiming. The people heard the gospel like you did today, and he says this, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? What do we do with this? You've just heard this. What do you do with this? Paul says this. He says, repent. That word repent means a turning. It's a turning from self and a turning from God. It's an, it's an acknowledgement of who he is and our need. He says, repent, turn to God and be baptized. That's an outward expression of what God's doing on the inside. Every one of you in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. This is not a formula. This is a reference to the authority by which we do it. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. When you are born again, the Holy Spirit moves in. And when you are born again, he says this, the promise, this promise is for you. And I love this next part, if you're a parent and your children, and if you have some friends and all who are far off. For all whom the Lord our God will call. So what do we do with this gospel? Paul gives us very simple this, repent, get baptized, and seek to know and to do his will. That is the response we have to the very simple gospel that is given to us by Paul, displayed through the resurrection. So I have a question for you. Do you think you will go to heaven? Well, play the trump card. Play the trump card. I believe that Jesus, the Christ, the King of all eternity, died for my sins, was buried and rose again, and lives today as Christ, Lord of my life. You can know where you're going today. Let's pray. God, I thank you, Jesus, for the resurrection, the seal, the deal, and proved the whole thing to be true. So God, I just pray right now, if there's anyone here that needs to know that reality, Lord, that they would do exactly what Acts chapter 2 says, is to repent, to turn from themselves and turn to you, God. And that they would, dis and that they would follow up this declaration of faith through the public declaration of baptism, and that they would seek to know and to do your will. If you're here today and that's you, would you just take a moment and just talk to Jesus? 
in your own words, in your own words, say, Jesus, I believe. I believe that you died on the cross for my sin. And I believe that you rose again from the dead. In your own words, tell him, God, this is what I receive and what I believe. This is what I trust in. God, I surrender my life to you in your own words. God, you're the king of my life. Help me to follow you, to know you. I turn from myself and I turn to you, God. Here's my life. Show me how to live in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Living Way Church podcast. If you enjoyed this message, we hope you come visit us in Garland, Texas. For directions and more information about the church, go to www.livingwaychurch.cc.